Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I'm your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 62, featuring my guest, Phil Schneider of TheRinger.com and The Way of the Blade. And we're going to be talking about a lot of fun and interesting stuff in just a minute. But there's big stuff going on that I just want to briefly touch on before we get to that. What a week. I know that this is an old school wrestling podcast, so I'm not going to dwell too much on current contemporary wrestling. There are many other places you can go to for that kind of talk, including some of the other fine podcasts on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. But I, I would be remiss if I didn't at least briefly uh, hope that those of you that do follow the current product and maybe even some lapsed fans who check in now and then, that you guys enjoyed uh, WrestleMania 39 just concluded last weekend, the two-night show, as they've been doing the past few years. I thought it was a terrific show. There were definitely some highlights. Rhea Ripley versus Charlotte Flair was amazing. I think Rick should be very, very proud of his daughter. That triple threat intercontinental title match on night two was something that the likes of Johnny Valentine and Wahoo McDaniel, I think, could be very proud of, a match like that. There were a few other highlights that I enjoyed very much, the tag team title match that main evented night one. I did take some issue creatively with what they decided to do in the main event with the son of the son of the plumber against the son of Seek of the Wild Samoan. I probably would have done that a different way, but that's why they're not paying me the big bucks to book WWE. That's Triple H's job slash headache these days. So that's up to him. And we'll, I guess we'll see how that plays out. Certainly didn't play out as I would have expected or honestly hoped that they would do. But again, don't want to dwell too much on current modern wrestling. The last I will say on the matter is, of course, the other big news coming out of this week. The morning after WrestleMania, the sale finally going through. WWE now belonging to the Endeavor Holding Group the same company which also owns UFC, World Wrestling Entertainment, no longer in the possession of the McMahon family, which has owned it in one form or another going back to the 1950s. Certainly, the end of an era, the changing of the guard. We talked about it a little bit here a few months ago when Vince initially stepped down from the company and his legacy and that sort of thing. A lot has changed since then, no doubt. Personal issues of impropriety aside, which I do wish some of these outlets would talk more about instead of pretending that it never happened, I will say that looking at the accomplishment of turning this company around, a company that Vince McMahon bought in 1982 and into 1983 for about a million and a half dollars from his father and his father's partners, and now to turn it around a little over 40 years later and make a sale that's worth something in the vicinity of $4 billion with a B, 
that is certainly something to be amazed at. It is probably the most boomerish thing that a boomer has ever done. So hats off to the ultimate boomer himself, Mr. Vincent Kennedy McMahon. Now, moving right along from this big, big week in the world of pro wrestling, I'd like to talk about my guest and the show that we have for you today, episode 62. So a lot of people know Phil, I think, from the book, The Way of the Blade. That's how I first got to know him, because he had me on the podcast that went with that book, The Way of the Blade, to talk about some of the Sheik's very bloody matches. So The Way of the Blade talks about the bloodiest matches, basically, in wrestling history, or, you know, Phil's choices for the super bloody matches that he wants to talk about. It's a fascinating topic. So, of course, me writing the book about the Sheik, it was only a matter of time before we crossed paths. And as I say here in the conversation that you're about to listen to, that was one of my favorite podcast appearances to do. For me, it was a no-brainer to have now to have Phil on as a guest on my show to continue the conversation that we started a while back on his show. So without further ado, I'm going to take you to the conversation with Phil Schneider right now now. Okay, so this week on Shut Up and Wrestle, I'm excited to say it's going to be a meeting of the writers, a meeting of the podcasters, a meeting of the historians. I love these kind of conversations because my guest this week is a noted writer and podcaster. You may have read his articles on TheRinger.com where he is a regular contributor. He's also the author of the excellent and amazing Way of the Blade book and the host of the Way of the Blade podcast, looking at some of the bloodiest matches in wrestling history. I've been proud to be a guest on that show, and I join an incredible elite collection of guests that includes people like Tony Khan, Steve Kern, Necro Butcher, recently Dustin Rhodes. I am talking about none other than Phil Schneider. Thank you for coming to Shut Up and Wrestle, Phil, and welcome. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. We haven't chatted in a while, and, you know, it, it's a, I always love, it's not hard to get me to come talk about professional wrestling. I know. Uh, See, that's so. that's what I was saying. Even before we started, I'm like, when I'm, when I'm thinking of people to have on here, it's got to be people that I know, obviously, they love wrestling, and they can talk about wrestling, and they never get tired of talking about wrestling. And you are on that list, because I remember, I still, I have to say, I'm not just saying it because I'm talking to you right now, but the pod, and this is no offense to anyone else that had me on their show, but I think Way of the Blade might have been my favorite podcast that I w- that I've been a guest on, where we talked about um, the Funks versus Abdullah the Butcher and the Sheik in Japan. I mean, that was I could have talked for hours about that. I think we did. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot, it's a lot of fun. I, you know, the the ringer gig that I've had has made it a little harder to do the podcast more regularly. I'm hoping that I get to get get it kind of cooking again in 2023. But I mean, I had it, it was a lot of fun to do, and just the opportunity to talk to a bunch of different people, writers and other fans, and then, you know, getting a chance to chat with, with wrestlers and, you know, you know, too. And it's not something, I mean, I've been doing the sort of, you know, I've been writing about wrestling for, you know, 20 plus years longer, maybe almost 25, because I, I really started when I was, you know, right out of college working and writing for the Death Valley driver and, and doing that for a long time. And that's a good kind of for a long time, but I was never a guy who really, did a lot of interacting with wrestlers. I just would 
do my in my, my own corner writing about my weird things. So part of the fun <laughs> of doing the podcast, and then I've had a chance a little bit uh, with some of the ringer stuff I've done is you know interact with people who are actually doing this and surprisingly uh, pleasant interactions with all the wrestlers I've had. You wouldn't necessarily you wouldn't think that, but I mean it was like everybody everybody I've talked to been delightful, which is not what I necessarily was expecting when I when I started to reach out to people for it. So. That's true. I mean, it it is an unexpected thing. I have to say, coming from the same kind of experience, you know, when I started doing that with WWE, especially where you're around them a lot, the first thing you think of is, oh my god, these these guys are gonna like eat me alive. You know, I mean, they're gonna, but but nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, yes, there are. I mean, there are some experiences from time to time that that are uh, not the most positive but to be kind but um that's the tiny minority i mean most most wrestler interactions i've had have been wonderful and and really professional and good like the Dakro butcher you wouldn't necessarily think of him as sit down and have like a fun hour long conversation delightful delightful guy right uh, yeah and- it's true same same thing like like jimmy jacobs you kind of think of like that guy's a lunatic but yeah Delightful, pleasant, pleasant guy to talk to. Yeah, and I just had Attila Khan on the show a, a couple of weeks ago, and, and you know his persona—he's he, a Midwest indie wrestler. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but his persona is like he's like a cross between Abdullah the Butcher and the Sheik combined. You know, he's a complete lunatic. And when I had him on, you know, re- real life Dennis McCause, he was one of the kindest, most soft spoken introspective intelligent guests that i have ever had on the show honestly yeah no i mean it's it's, it's pretty funny but yeah no it's been it's been uh it's been a a crazy uh you know couple of years since the book has come out for me for like really sort of transitioning from somebody who really did this as just a right thing that i as, as a fun hobby to you know basically doing it professionally well uh, it's which is yeah i was gonna pretty, say uh and you know, cool thing is, I didn't have to necessarily. I get to do basically my the same weird stuff I do. I've been doing since I started doing this. Like I haven't really had to modulate my shtick particularly, which I just you know assumed that if I was actually going to get paid for this, I'd have to be like, all right, let me give you. Let's talk about what happened on SmackDown last Friday. <laughs> it's like nope. Instead, I'm, the ringers let me just like write about like dog collar matches and and you know weird. Uh, uh weird stuff like that and not really you know had me uh talk about you know scoops and stuff like this this never been my the thing that i've been particularly interested in or have necessarily a ton to contribute to the people that do that right like those good people who do that or news guys are good at that and like i don't know how good or interested i would necessarily be in in uh in that world so it's been pretty cool to just get a chance to go like i'm do Phil, weird Phil Schneider stuff at like on a bigger stage and have more people take a look at it and seemingly appreciate it, which is kind of cool. Well, I do, you know, I do some of the news stuff for contributing to the wrestling news podcast, but, um, you know, for my own show and the plans that I always had to do a show, that was definitely not something that I was interested in doing for my own show in terms of like just talking about current wrestling and what's happening each week. And not that I don't follow it because I do very closely because of all the other work that I do, but from, for fun, you know, you know what I mean? When it, when it comes to fun, which this show for me is fun, that's not really my preference of the kind of stuff that I, that I want to talk to on, talk about. And I, I like to kind of 
you know, go off the beaten path and go down these rabbit holes and things. And and that's why I, I much prefer doing a show like this. But I have to say that um, the book, because you mentioned it, it's so interesting to me because it's such a unique idea to to write about sort of the the history of these bloody matches. And, and you don't even try to rank them, which I think is really smart. It's more like chronological in there. And you also, I have to say, you sidestep very elegantly the problem of photography in books like this and licensing photographs and all that stuff, because you have these incredible, for people that know the book or don't know, I mean, these striking illustrations by Chris Bryan, which I think is like, I mean, that Terry Funk cover is iconic. I mean, it's the kind of thing where like the the, the illustrations really help to sell the book, I think. I mean, my writing is fine. Uh, but Chris is <laughs> art of another level. Like, I say, it's fine. <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> saying that to matches, But I mean, Chris's art is like, it really is incredible. And it really is. It makes it the book uh, entirely. He is he is really talented. And it was like, a yeah, when I talked about it with, you know, John Snowden, who published it, when we came up with the ideas, like the initial thing was like, oh, it would be cool to get a bunch of photos like it would be like you know a tribute to you know wrestling eye or some of those grimier pro wrestling magazines that you know i we're, we I think we're you know about the same age you, you what are you you'd go to the newsstand and you'd spend hours just going through these wrestling magazines. so we thought oh we should do that and then we actually started to look into how what the what that would entail and it's like oh this would this is going to cost a fortune. Well, and it was like, to, to like, you know, especially because we're trying to like get a hundred matches, right? So can we find a hundred, we license a hundred pictures? No, not even close. Could we do 20? Even that's a little out of, out of the realm of possibility. So we right. kind of had to come up with a little bit of an alternative, uh, you know, plan for it out of necessity, right? Because it just wasn't going to be a feasible thing to try to get, photographs for a book like that. I mean, you know, you've, 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 you're uh Oh, it's a, it's a dance. You were a little, a little less in, independent and a little less bootstrappy than the than you know. No, but it's thing. but still, it's still I hard. I yeah, there's yeah, still so the, a lot of penny pinching and bean counting and down to the wire, like down to the dollar, like within the budget. I mean, it, it can get frustrating. It's not just. I mean, it's just books in general, especially smaller presses. You really have to like sit there and do these mental gymnastics. What can we afford? What do we want? Who are we going to go to? And so I'm just like, I'm in awe of how you solve the problem. I'm also curious though. I have to ask one thing. It made the book, right? Like it it really is like it made it. It, It's a use. It's a really cool. I think it's a really cool thing. And one of the reasons, and it's like 70% how cool the art is. Like, I think I did a fun job writing it. I think I found some really cool, you know, I think I did it. I liked that my idea behind it was I wanted to do sort of this, you know, touch on wrestling from all over the world, from all throughout history, and use blood as sort of just a, a like a an organizing principle almost, right? So I want to write something about 1950s French wrestling because 1950s French wrestling is awesome. And we just, we, uh, me and a handful of other people sort of were able to unearth this treasure trove of wrestling from France. And so I want to write about that. So, you know, there's some matches that got some blood in it. So I get a chance to write a, like an essay about, about um, um, Dr. Adolf Kaiser working as a, as a German physician in, in literally post-war France. I mean, there's a difference between 
uh, you know, Baron Von Raschke goose stepping in, in, you know, 1980s Minnesota, you know, the 1953 France. That's like less than 10 years. I know. The Rockets, God, the Nazis. that's and nuts. Uh, in their, in their and his, and his name is Adolf Kaiser. I mean, who, who, Dr. 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 Adolf, what a name. Oh, yeah. So, uh, um, so I get to, I wanted to write about that. And I, you know, wanted to write a little about Puerto Rico and I wanted to write about Mexico and I wanted to write about Japan and, you know, the Indies from the two early 2000s and big WrestleMania matches and all of that stuff. And so I sort of used it as like, well, this is an organizing principle, right? So I get to, I, blood is, it's going to be about what blood means to wrestling, but it's also just going to be a chance for me to, you know, okay, there's, there's blood in this UWF, uh, UWF match. So now I get to write about, you know, 80s Japanese shoot style wrestling, you know, or there's the blood in this Lucha match. I get to write about Lucha blood in this, you know, match from, you know, Houston in 85. I get to talk about how cool it was for that brief period where we got all that Houston footage and, you know, just like all this stuff. So it was sort of a, it was a a chance for me to kind of branch out and talk about all the wrestling uh, that I've watched and, you know, talk about stuff that, headline wrestlemania but also talk about stuff that was in front of 75 people in a barn in georgia but also just as good and and i'm curious about the the idea of the art too and one thing i wanted to ask about it is was there also a concern maybe not i'm just curious that if you did use photography to have like to have illustrations of bloody matches maybe is something that you can get away with more than an entire book of just photos of of bloody faces like was there any concern about that 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 the illustrations I mean, I, I were like a little easier for people to stomach i don't know just a thought i don't know some of his illustrations are pretty gruesome. no i know they are yes <laughs> um i don't know i mean i you know when we came up with this idea it's not like we were thinking oh commercially i mean it was like one of those things right. like john john had written a bunch of books you know for bigger publishers and wanted to start and released his ken shamrock book, which is great it is uh, one of the best wrestling books ever written i think and, and on his own and wanted to start publishing other stuff and you know i'd known him from he was a guy you know well sort of an acquaintance from back in the you know message board days in the night so i when i saw that he was doing that i kind of hit him up but i mean the basic idea when we were thinking financial is well can I I don't want John's got kids. So I don't want him to lose money. That was my only concern. It's like I don't want him to lose money. I don't want to write this and then have him like have his kids can't go on a, a school field trip because <laughs> he because <laughs> he set a bunch of money on fire publishing my book. So that was my only financial concern. It was like I want to do this. I think it would be awesome to be able to write a book and have my name on my book and you know have something that people could check out. I just can, will it sell enough copies so John doesn't lose money? That was my only concern. And, and it well exceeded that. So, you know, that, but I, I don't think we were making, like, thinking is like publishing, fighting, well, will this sell better with, we were just like, can I, can we get a couple hundred copies of this so John doesn't, you know, so it doesn't, he's not in the red. Well, he's not in right. the red. So he, uh, he, and, uh, and I made a little money on it too. And, and, you know, we were very happy with how well it sold, but, it, I don't think we were really thinking the way, of, like maybe a ECW press was thinking about. Well, is this going to sell it or really? Because we were like, I don't know. Is there a, are there 150 people who are going to buy this goofy book? I don't, maybe, and then and it turned out like a lot more people did. And then it was basically an audition, uh, an audition reel for the Ringer. So I, when I got, you know, I was able to get right. that job basically because I had written this book and I had sort of proof of concept. Right, this is the thing I do. 
you know, uh, do you guys are you guys interested in that? And and it turned out they uh, so somewhat surprisingly they were. So it's worked out. I mean, it couldn't have worked out better for for you know basically everybody in the sense that I think it was a nice money earner for Hypertrue Publishing. Got me a job. Got me a job. You know, working for. Really, I never thought about having a professional wrestling a job in professional wrestling. It was never something that was in front of my head. Like there aren't that many of them that no. I would be interested in taking. Like I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want like a WWE writing job. Like it just that just sounds like the people I know who have worked in that company in those jobs just it doesn't sound like something I would be a good at or be interested in doing that and i don't you know like the other stuff like i don't like i said i don't i wouldn't want to do kind of like a sean ross sap kind of thing either i don't think i'd be good at that so really was there was i had a pretty narrow window of a thing that i think i would be good at and i kind of you know landed in the one the dart in the one spot on the dartboard that would work because <laughs> the rigger just like you know like i said they let me do pretty much my stuff and you know and it's a big company that pays pretty well so i'm you know thrilled about it um you know, uh, it was something that that was a site that, you know, I would listen to their, you know, movie podcasts and TV podcasts, basketball podcasts and read the site well before I ever started working there. So I'm pretty uh, excited to do that. And yeah, that, that was the book, right? That got me that that was basically that got me that gig. So even if it sold five copies and get me the gig, it's well worth well it was well worth the time doing it. It's great when that happens. I mean, like one thing leads to another and, you know, you do something and, you know, like obviously I did the Sheik book and then there's interest in other projects and things. And I've been able to do work with Arcadian Vanguard, Pro Wrestling Illustrated. I mean, you know, it, it, it's it's fun when you're able to get paid, even if it's a little, for things that you love to write about and work about and 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 think about, you know. And so I, I say this all the time to Kevin McElvaney, who is the editor-in-chief of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. I always tell him how lucky he is in so many ways. It's like, how many people in wrestling media, writing about wrestling, editing wrestling, you know, getting to have like a full-time salary job, benefits, go to work every day, you know, kiss the wife, get in the car, drive to an office, and you're working on a, on a wrestling magazine like all day long. I mean, like. I don't know, you could probably count on one hand the amount of people on the planet that that can do that. Yeah. So I mean, that kind yeah, of thing I, is no. amazing. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm I'm I know I and I, like I said, people ask me, I think I've got the best. I I personally think I've got the best gig in wrestling media. Because I mean I get <laughs> to basically do because they they career pays pretty well. I mean, I, I certainly make way more money from that than I ever, ever assumed I would ever make from professional wrestling. <laughs> like, you know, I'm, I'm the only other money I made before the, before the book was I, I made some, I was like a tape dealer in like the nineties. Like, you know, I would make, I would make mixtapes of Schneider comps and sell them, uh, right. you know, over the internet. So I made a little, I made some beer money doing that when I was, you know, like 25, but outside I, of that, you know, I remember yeah. those days I was, I was all about, collecting tapes i was I, I like i had john mcadam on here a while back and i talked about how like you know he was a name that i knew you know going back to the 90s and and then when he had his own podcast i you know i became a listener but i was always hunting down things and the early days of the internet you know like the real early days of finding websites and things that were selling tapes i remember i grew up in new, in new york city and in the Staten Island Mall, there was a kiosk. It's crazy. Uh, just a kiosk where the guy was selling 
wrestling compilation tapes. A lot of them were RF video, but I think there were others too. Was it, was it an RF video kiosk? I think you, I remember. You know what? It, actually, it might have been strictly an RF video kiosk. And I remember getting like world class stuff, Memphis, Florida. Like it was, and this, and I'm talking like, God, man, like maybe almost 30 years ago now. It was like a gold mine to find something like that. And I used to go to the Staten Island Mall pretty often in those days. Don't ask me why, but I would I would always stop by there and buy stuff from from that kiosk. Yeah, I had uh, I had found a, a Japanese video store. Uh, um, this is when I was in college. Uh, in uh, when I would come home during the summers in 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 California, where I'm from, I'm from the Bay Area, and there was one, I found one in Hayward, and they would have Japanese. This was '94, '95. So they would have Japanese uh, TV. So like all Japan and New Japan TV. So I would get, I got like a double VCR set up at my parents' house and yep. would rent the tapes, copy them. And then I would started uh, to, then, then I had like some stuff that I could trade, right? Like now I had like, okay, I got the most recent all Japan TV shows on tape let's go ahead and put that uh, put those cards on the table and see what else like and then I started getting you know some lucha and then I started getting some other things and then I got lined up with the Death Valley driver guys um this is even before the board this was on like rec sports pro wrestling uh hooked up with Dean and we became buddies and then he started then I started getting in the loop when he would get stuff sent from him there's a guy in Japan who you uh named Glenn who used to just tape all the Japanese wrestling off the TV in Japan. And then he would send tapes to Dean of like everything, like LBW, all Japan women, make it a pro battle arts, FMW, whatever you get it. He would send him a tape like once a month of all this stuff. And then he would like copy it and send it out to like, you know, a handful of people. So I used to get like, we, and it's so funny now that was such like a, a coup right to get in on the circle of the guy who was getting the eight hour tapes and stuff from japan in the 90s and now of course like all wrestling <laughs> is know. virtually all wrestling that has ever happened is just on the internet and you can like you know there's no there's no search anymore there's no, no. like hustling a tape with two vcrs to copy going to the the the, the mall to the rf video kit now it's just like okay <laughs> when, when I, I uh you know lanny poffo passes away and i want to yeah. watch some lanny poffo and it's like oh there's a a 1982 hair versus hair steel cage match against Rich Rip Rogers just on YouTube. Just watch it. Right. You, know, you ever see that match? Uh, no, I haven't seen that one. But actually, there's a great one that I that I always tell people about from his early years. It's also on YouTube. It's him. Oh man, it's oh man. Of course, I don't remember now. It Irish Mickey Doyle is involved in the match. Oh man, of course, I'm blanking on it now. But it's it's a it's a great match from the Ontario territory that they did from from those oh, early years too. But it's so easy I, now, I like you said, a, it's true. I pitched a, I pitched a should I do a five like a memorial five best lady papa matches for the ringer? I haven't heard back on that. I, I like at, at some point I think there's I got to do it for Jay Briscoe. I, I mean I think there's probably a, a lady papa may not. May not reach the level that I get to pull that off, but I was like, I'm starting to do some research on this just in case I get the heads up. Yeah, hair versus hair match with Rip Rogers goes about cage match goes about 25 minutes and really, really good. Yeah, why not? I mean, he, he did great Uncut, stuff. The video quality is really good. Uh, yeah, there's another. There's a Lanny Poffo, Ronnie Garvin 
uh, singles match from ICW from about that same time period, like early 80s. That's also right. like really long and really, really good. And, you know, Ronnie Garvin is a, you know, is a tank, obviously. We were talking a little before uh, you came on. You mentioned you were doing a Johnny Valentine piece. And like Garvin would be like, was in some ways like the era, I mean, and Greg, right? Both of them were kind of the era parents that Johnny Valentine style after right. Valentine retired. These Those are the guys that kind of took the mantle. So if you want to watch Ronnie, if you guys are interested in sort of doing a, a, a mini deep dive in Lanny Poff after he passed away, watch him hair match with Rip Rogers. We'll find this Mickey Doyle thing. Brian will find the uh, the, uh, the the match and put it on YouTube, right? Yeah, you know, I actually, I remembered it now. It's Angelo okay. and Lanny Poffo. Angelo and Lanny Poffo, who at the time were NWA World Tag Champions for the Sheik. And they are going against Billy Red Lions and Irish Mickey Doyle, and it's a it's like from mid seventies. It's a it's super hot match, and the funny thing, like he's one of those guys where you look at their career, and I did a little obit for him for Wrestling News, and it's like yes, the the greatest notoriety that they got in terms of eyeballs seeing them was it, their years with the WWF. There's no question about it, but. Really, some of the best work they did, and I want to say just flat out, period, the best work they did was actually before they got there. Like, he's one of those guys. Like, like again, yeah, right. right. Mid-70s, late-70s, early-80s. Like, Lanny Poffo did the best stuff of his career. He won all the major titles that he was ever going to win. And then he came to the WWF, and again, he had the biggest audience watching him. But in a way, he sort of did the least, you know, of his entire career. So it's like this interesting paradox that, like you said, Duggan, there's a lot of guys. Duggan is a great example of that. There's a lot of people like that who they're most remembered for WWF, but that was not the best that was, yeah, of the yeah. career in you terms do, of just their a, work. You, know you I mean? could do a great fantasy graph of awesome 80s wrestlers who kind of Oiled in mediocrity. Well, Terry Taylor is a great example. I'd even Butch say Ted Reed. DiBiase. Ted DiBiase is a good oh, example of that. Yeah, DiBiase would be uh, would be for sure, right? Like, although he had he had some pretty good matches in the WWE. You know, WWE Coco Ware. I mean, you, yeah. you know, you know, Coco Ware is a guy. You know, oh, that's a guy who had the bird and he would lose most times on WWE superstars. But you go back and do some you know, Memphis Coco Ware, the Bushwhackers. Oh what about the Bushwhackers? Oh, Bushwhackers would be the perfect one, right? Because those guys were <laughs> those guys were, you know, violent maniacs. And then, you know, or and, you know, that was the thing, right? They got to the WF and then it was like, okay, now you guys are working, you know, this, you know, 275 matches a year or something like that, and traveling constantly. And right. the Bushwhackers are like, ah, I'm not gonna, not gonna carve myself open in barbed wire. I'm gonna go ahead and, you know, make I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy a nice big house. Uh Doing my arms up and down and licking people on the head, and you know, it's like, but, all right, it's almost <laughs> like a pension, right? It's like, all right, the, the Bushwhackers probably took five bumps, you know, right. a, a month. Maybe. But they, but they earned it. They earned it, though. All those years of what they put in. I, I've always been curious about them. Of like, what was it? I mean, I know people, Vince McMahon, you know, controversial figure and all that, but I mean, he had a lot of vision about wrestling. There's nobody could deny that. What? was it that he saw those guys and said, I could make marketable cartoon characters out of them that children are going to love? Like what in the world could he have seen in them that made him think that, but he was right. <laughs> well, you watch, if you watch the stuff 
with like with the hindsight of knowing what the what happened later, you can kind of see it, right? You watch those brawls and they're making those funny faces. You're like, yeah, <laughs> I can see how you those funny faces turned twenty degrees or funny faces that you're making you're putting on kids' backpacks. You know, there'd be you know when when Luke you know is making uh, which was making that funny face while jabbing a pencil into you know Bobby <laughs> Fulton's eye or something like that. It's like a funny face. <laughs> like I kind of get it, but yeah, it does take some weird uh i mean obviously they had a lot of misses too but that was like a oh, weird yeah. hit the bushwhackers i mean they dug in too right doug was a guy who was you know like a a great brawler great like two-fisted bloody brawler and then you know was a guy who was similarly a cartoon guy i mean as like a nerd as like a matches nerd, but there's a guy. there's a difference like it's like man what would happen if doug right. had just gone to nwa in in the 80s instead what? of uh, stuck around instead of leaving well, I well, want to be clear, like, years. right. But when I say that too, I just want to be clear. Like I'm not, not being naive. Like I fully understand that guys like Duggan, DiBiase, even Lanny Poffo, the Bushwhackers, all those guys, they made by far the best money of their career. And they, they had the largest audiences of their career when they came to the WWF. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a very smart move, but that's different from, there were some guys who went there who had successful careers who went there and got ruined and they never recovered and they didn't make good money there. And they were just the the two people that immediately pop in my head were Terry Taylor, who I mentioned, and also Dick Slater, who never, he went there for that short lived. They made him the rebel where he had the Confederate flag and he was a baby face, which was weird. But then like, that was it. I mean, he had, after that, yes, he continued to work, but he never seemed to be at the same level that he was at when he went from when after he got through with the WWF. So there were guys that went there that actually got hurt by going there at that time. Yeah. Although Taylor was able to sort of he never got over that rooster thing. Never really. Oh no, but he was able to kind of hang around and become like a executive and things yeah. like that. I think. No, no, I don't so mean that. I'm not saying they were gone. Right. Like Terry no. Taylor ended up making a nice amount of living in pro wrestling. Uh, right. But yeah, no. yeah, Dick Slater was was Dick Slater. I'm kind of trying to time the rebel. Eighty six, eighty seven, So he had the NWA run after that, right? He did he did, but. I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is headlining. He was headlining mid. He was the mid South North American champion, right? Maybe, you know, this also there's subjectivity to this too. But I always feel like looking at his career. I'm not saying he was dead in the water. Same thing for Terry Taylor. But looking at the career before they got there and after, and the period before is definitely doing. He they're doing better than the period after. You know, it's a, kind of a weird example of this, but I think a pretty good one that's later. I'm uh, working on something uh, for The Ringer, which hopefully come out in a couple of weeks, about sort of uh, that Omega period hmm. of, uh, you know, the Hardys Indies in the 90s where, you know, they that was like a star machine, right? You'd have this um, arm. I used, to, I used to go to these shows when I, when I was in the East Coast. I used to go down with... Dean Rasmussen and Phil Reppa and we the Death Odd Driver guys we used to hop in the car and drive down to North Carolina to see the the these Hardys Indies. You go to these shows, and you know everybody on that show basically that was in this tiny armory, right? It's the Hardy Boys, but it's also Shannon Moore and it's Shane Helms and it's um, uh, you know Caprice Coleman who was started out there and and, and Joey Matthews would work these shows. These guys that all ended up with jobs, but the one that I always assume you know that 
two guys that I would assume would be a big stars. One of them, uh, Champagne Marty Garner, just never did it. That's what the article is about. But the other one was that do you I, do you remember Jason Arndt, who yes. ended up being Jimmy Abs? That I guy, that guy was a, a goddamn superstar. I mean, because he was huge. Right, all the other guys were juniors. He was like a guy who was like you know six three two eighty of all muscle and could move and look like he was going to be like a big star. And that Joey Abs gimmick. I mean, he was out of wrestling. Well, the thing about that, because I, I was there at that time, I was in WWE at that time, and Jason Art. So, you know, they had been sort of using him as kind of an enhancement guy, but but the thing is, they thought so highly of him, and I know this wound up, like you said, it did derail his career, but they thought so highly of him that what they did was, and I don't know if this was Shane's input or whatever, so they had this Mean Street Posse gimmick, right, which was basically Shane McMahon's real-life friends from school that he, I mean, for real, like like Rodney and, and, and Pete Gas, Pete Gasparino, <laughs> I mean, Pete Gas's mother, you know, used to work, like, at the bank in Stanford, like, I mean, they were... They were local friends of Shane's, but everyone recognized they needed like a ringer, not pardon the expression, but they needed someone in there who was a really good worker who could sort of carry them. And that was the origin of the Joey Abs thing. It was it was actually because they had a lot of confidence in him. But yeah, what wound up happening was like Joey Abs became like the catch all and I sort of blame Mick Foley partly for this because he had a lot of fun, like making fun of him. But Joey Abs became like one of these names of like when you instantly want to talk about, you know, kind of a lame, forgotten, no nothing, you know, kind of like also ran WWF mid Carter from that era. Like that that name unfortunately comes up. Like Mick Foley made the joke in his book about like the the greatest matches of Joey Abs, almost as if to say like there aren't any. But like stuff like that. It's but yeah, if you if the ringer gave your career, you find ten great Joey Abs matches. I could do it. That guy had some absolute right. corkers in 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 development, and then obviously in North Carolina before. And you would assume that when you would go to those shows, you go, okay, which one of these guys is going to be the star? Well, it's right. like it's this kid six three, and you know, and built like a, a tank, not you know Shannon Moore, who obviously had a great career, but was like you know scrawny but and the- tiny. The Joey Abs thing derailed him. It really did. Yeah, completely. No I mean, even so, he's like when we talk about the derailing. That's the guy I always think of even more like somebody like Dick Slater was like, man, that guy should have been. Uh, and there's a right. lot of guys like that. You know, a lot of sort of those. those I guess your period where you got a, a list of guys like, man, this there's there's some guys whose careers should have been different, right? I, I think of guys like you know those some of those power plant guys like Mark Jindrak or Chuck Palumbo or or you know like. I don't know. It was weird that those guys just, you know, even though they looked like a million bucks, were pretty good wrestlers, just never were able to connect. I mean, well, they, Jindrak they, ended up having a pretty good career in Mexico. Yeah, they got hurt. Like, those guys got hurt by the fact that, you know, fans were really disappointed because when the whole invasion thing happened, they couldn't get any of the big names. The contracts were still ro- rolling over from Turner and all that stuff. And so they wound up with just guys like that who had sort of still been mid-carders in WCW, Sean O'Hare, and the WWF fans just turned on them like, who the hell are these guys? And that all then then that wound up derailing them. And and they did their best. I mean, they had Roddy, who was the guy? Roddy Piper was managing him for a while. Was it I think it might have been Sean O'Hare. Sean O'Hare. I think it was O'Hare. And I remember like Shane 
who I worked directly for. So I would hear him all the time. He was really high on those guys. Like he really did his best to get them in the mix, but it just, it just didn't work. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, there's, like I said, you could do a, a fun fantasy draft of like, of, of sort of WWE cautionary tale wrestlers. Or it's like, these guys, you know, you know, uh, and I, you know, I think that's just part of it, right? You know, you never, well, you never know what's, what's going to happen. Make somebody gonna, what, what'll make somebody click and what'll make somebody, what won't make somebody. I mean, I, you know, used to, I wouldn't have necessarily guessed that CM Punk would have been the guy out of that group of like, True. early 2000s guys. I mean, he was obviously always a good talker, but he never looked like somebody who was going to go on to be a big, a huge star. I always thought like at best he'll be like a cult figure. You know what I mean? Rather no, that's than, so like, true. He I, he doesn't have a look where you go like that's a star. He absolutely does not. But but he is a star. So it's, you know, yeah. No, I mean, I'm saying I don't know. I always wonder, like, man, I don't know if I would have been a good talent scout, even though the amount of wrestling I watched for that period is like, well, would I have actually been good at at star picking? Maybe it's like you know the NFL. It's like picking quarterbacks in the NFL, right? Like, you know, every you, you, five will get drafted in the first round, and one of them will end up being a superstar. And four of them will end up being, oh god, remember when that guy got drafted fourteen? I know and because it's a little like that in wrestling too. Where it's like, ah, oh, that guy looks like he's got everything, and then it turns out it's not going to happen. Well, this other guy who didn't seem like he was going to be destined for much, you know, doesn't end up uh, ends up being you know huge. Well, I was there for like that those years of where it was pre NXT and, and they were dealing with developmental. So you had like OVW, you had HWA, they were getting people. What was the one in California where Cena came from? Is that UPW? I think yeah, the UPW. They, they had that there was deep South wrestling for a while. And so like there would be, there was like a barrage of guys that, you know, and everybody remembers Cena, Brock Lesnar, Batista, you know, Randy Orton, maybe Shelton Benjamin, but there was like there was a constant influx, and you never knew who was gonna hit and who wasn't. And so there are some forgotten people from that time. I remember Ron Waterman, he was somebody that they were super high on. He came from OVW and he just did nothing. It's like sometimes you just didn't like they were saying he was gonna be the next Scott Steiner. You you never know sometimes. You just you you can look back in hindsight and go, Oh, yeah, I always knew, and blah, blah, blah. Like I saw. Randy Orton versus John Cena on the Pillman Memorial show in 2001, which was an HWA show. And like, I'm not going to sit here and go, oh, yeah, I watched that match. And I was like, these guys are going to be the future of wrestling. Like, I, I didn't really think that. I mean, they were good, but you just never know sometimes. Sometimes that does happen. And sometimes you just you just can't predicted honestly and even you know, that's always true right you go we go back and if we go, went back into the 80s and looked at the list of you know guys from then right well larry cameron you know like all the all the like wrestling magazine dudes or you think oh my god look at that guy that guy looks right. incredible you know uh uh i mean Ahmed johnson i think was a great example of that too when you started to see take you know oh, early yeah. him in texas where he was like doing these crazy dives and stuff like oh, oh adib yeah, this guy looks like the ultimate warrior, and it looked it was like flying like Jush and Liger. This guy's gonna be the biggest star. And nope. And, you know, that's so that's a great always, example. He's always a been part example. of it, right? Uh, you know, where 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 or you know, like if you just think like the four the four guys that came out of that uh um uh, Bassman group, right? That's, I don't right. think anybody necessarily looked at all four of those guys thought, oh, Sting, Ultimate Warrior, those guys are gonna be huge stars. These 
other two aren't. And I don't know. You could there's a there's an alternative uh, butterfly flapping chaos theory thing where those other two guys are two of the biggest stars of the '90s and Sting and Ultimate Warrior go back to you know Venice Beach and uh, and uh, and work at a gym somewhere, right? Like you, know, you never you can never really uh, some of it is really... some of it's just being in the right place at the right time, connections, getting seen by the right people. I mean, Sting in his case, was very lucky that he happened to be one of the people that got brought over when Mid-South and UWF got taken over by Crockett Promotions. And he he got brought in, you know, he got like grandfathered in and then his career exploded. Who knows what would have happened if if he wasn't in, you know, working for Bill Watts at the time? Like what, maybe, maybe he wouldn't have made it. I mean, it's nothing against him, but it's just because it's not just about talent. It's about opportunity, and and it, and the opportunity has to be there for for guys, no matter how good they are. Otherwise, they're not going to break through. Yeah, for sure. And you know, like I, you know, like I said, there's some of my uh, some of my all time favorite guys are are guys who have just kind of wrestled in the margins and the niches, and those guys have a cool grip. And that one, you know, when they some of the things I was highlighting in the book was a lot of guys. It's like, oh man, you know, it was great. This guy who's you've never heard of, but yeah, here's the chance. Maybe if five people pick up some NW, watch some NWA Anarchy on uh, YouTube, then I thought that would have been a successful thing that I did, right? Or you know, people check out these these sort of lesser known, you know, historical stuff. Um, has always been kind of my. I mean, you know, I the one of this Segunda Kaida, which is what I've been doing, what I was doing for years before I uh, wrote the book, before I buy the ringer and still exists. And I still write for it occasionally, but other guys have started taking that over. I mean, our big thing was to try to sort of unearth the, you know, the sort of stuff that people are watching, right? The stuff that people are, haven't seen or haven't heard about, but it's really great. That's always been our kind of goal. I mean, like I said, we, I mentioned this earlier, but we're just sort of finishing off this sort of compendium, pendulum of, Pendium, kind of It's compendium. Yes. Compendium <laughs> of French wrestling from like, you know, 1950, earliest matches like 55, and like the latest stuff is the, you know, early 80s. And that was a, just none of that stuff or none of these guys was on anyone's radar at all before we started sort of picking that up. I've seen and, some you know, of it floating around thanks to you guys. It, it's it's yeah, mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah, it really is some of that stuff. It really is some of the great wrestling that have ever happened. Happened in Paris in 1963. And, you know, know. so, you know, all these great, you know, you look at like, oh, you know, who's like, well, maybe one of the 30th greatest wrestlers of all time, Gilbert LeDuc. Have you ever heard of Gilbert LeDuc? No. Now maybe some people have heard of Gilbert LeDuc or Burt Michel or any of these, you know, uh, cool, uh, you know, really, uh, Le Petit Prince. Le Petit Prince was basically... Ray Mysterio Jr., except it was 1964. Right. It's if you crazy. watch that guy, that guy's Ray. Like that guy is that guy, that Rana is as fast as like early 90s Ray's Ray Jr.'s Rana's, but it was this was 1971 and it's France. Or, you know, you got you know, some or like these all-time great, you know, like uh, the French Angel or guys like that. It's like you've heard of, but you never heard early you know eduardo Compartier, early andre there's some early andre where it's just sure. like he's so dumb and well, handsome he, he started in france right i mean his first matches yeah. were in france I, I believe yeah and we got we we unearthed some of those earliest matches where it's like he's this young handsome 
slim, tall guy doing. I like, know it's crazy wrestling, <laughs> like we're yeah. really cool arm drags and head scissor takeovers, and you know it's like that's oh, Andre the Giant. Um, and then <laughs> the, the newest thing that we've that we've started to dig into is there's somebody who's uploading Panamanian lucha from like the 1980s. I didn't really know there was wrestling in Panama, but there was apparently a big lucha scene. And so now it's like I'm kind of familiar with some of the best guys. And they brought over some big Mexican stars, too. So, like, we just had covered over there uh, a series, like four matches of L.A. Park's uh, career. Like, this is pre-AAA L.A. Park, so pre-early 90s, this is like late 80s. Uh, stuff where he's having these crazy bloody mask matches uh, as, as Principia Island, where it's like, well, okay, LA Park's maybe one of the great, you know, 40 or 50 greatest wrestlers of all time. Here's a bunch of early career stuff that nobody's ever seen from Panama of all places that's like it blows your mind at how good it is. And there's some, you know, Los Brazos stuff, same thing, where it's like, we don't have that much Los Brazos footage. You know, in their prime, but here they are in Panama. You know, with baseball bats beating the crap out of some Panamanian dudes and bleeding, and super porky's covered in blood. It's like, oh man. So that's sort of you know one of the cool things we're trying to do, but also just like one of the great things about being a wrestling fan in twenty twenty three. I'm not as huge a fan of the current product as I miss some of the older stuff, but now it's just like you can get this older stuff, man, so much easier. And so much of the stuff that you never assumed you'd ever get to see just kind of shows up someday. There's so much wrestling from other countries, international wrestling that that has never been it, it, it's forgotten, overlooked. I mean, we all know Japan, Mexico, obviously, and to a certain degree now in recent years, UK wrestling has been something people have been, you know, at le- you know, over here have been trying to learn more about. But I mean, like you said, there's France, there's Germany, there's wrestling out of out of Africa. South Africa had wrestling. Nigeria had wrestling. You know, of course, Australia, New Zealand, and which is uh, more well known. But I mean, like I talked to Kevin Sullivan when I was doing the Sheik book. And this isn't just him making it up because I've heard other people mention it too. He talked about going on tours with the Sheik in the 80s to places like Singapore and um, oh, where else? In, in in kind of Indonesia. And I can't even find records of these shows, but I've heard other people talking about them. I know they happened, but there's just, it's like they just vanished into history, you know, that these kind of wrestling cultures in some of these far-flung countries i think that's i mean that's a fascinating topic for me because it's uncharted territory so why wouldn't you want to learn more about it steve Kern talked about working in guatemala <laughs> uh, we got sent down to work some shows in guatemala when he was pretty young and he said he used to eat up uh coins with lighters and throw them with the wrestlers <laughs> <It's> like jesus <laughs> <laughs> Who even thinks of that? That's just sick. <laughs> like, a, like a like a hot peso burn in your arm when you're trying to work <laughs> out like a, 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 a work on like a, a tag segment where you're getting heat on the baby face and getting dung with and dinged with uh so yeah, I mean uh, so that was one of the I mean that Panama stuff was like that. It's like, ah, oh, that's a country I didn't know I had this. And not only is this stuff really cool, but here is some, you know, hall of famers, you know all-time greats having like cool little matches in this cool matches in this period where you just don't have you know stuff in there where you can see like 
Ali Park's got a match against his uh, brother, Super Parker, Volador. That's like them against each other. It's awesome. And it's just really long. And, the you know, like just a bunch of crazy stuff. At one point, Ali Park does like a like a sunset flip powerbomb on the floor. Like a, but like a tope where he does like a dive. Right. But instead of like hitting him with the tope, he hits him with like a sunset flip powerbomb. It's like 1988. <laughs> that was doing that in 1988, right? That's like a that's like a 2016 evolved spot, not like a <laughs> 1988 Panama Mexico spot. Some of the stuff in France was like that too, where you'd watch the speed of it. It's like this feels like I'm watching like Dragon's Gate, and it's like, this is like 1956. And right? you, did, like, you know, American wrestling didn't look like that then. I mean, you know, guys didn't want to work that style. I mean, they didn't want people to know that stuff like that was happening out there because. They were happy working the, as they used to call it, the more methodical style that yeah, they worked. There's some stuff, right? Like, here's the I mean, I think people have like the, and you, you certainly agree. I mean, people have this sort of idea in their head that wrestling from the 50s and 60s and 70s looked a certain way. They think about, they think about like Jack Briscoe putting somebody in a headlock for 10 minutes or something. But the, the variety of stuff. That oh, yeah. You don't like that. Jack Briscoe, right? I think we uh, went over that, right? Enormous Jack or Dory fan. No. I remember but, that. I, I mean, yes. I like brawling Briscoe. But like that kind of, but you know, that kind of stuff. It's like, that's the idea of what it looked like. But that's not what it looked like. That's one no. thing that it looked like. But it also looked like all of these other things, too. And that's one of the cool things about this sort of explosion of footage is being like a story and being like a, you know, deep high wrestling. You guys like, oh, man, I get to see this stuff. That you know was incredible. That what that you know completely changes my assumptions, right? Like my preconceived notions about the way this thing that I love is supposed to have looked. And then you watch this, like, oh, okay, no, this is how it looked. They were doing, you know, they, you know, this is how stuff was happening like this in 1962, and you didn't know this. And you know, I mean, I, that period when NW when they had the NWA Houston footage, same thing, where it was like yes. you know these matches. That you know, there's these holy grail matches is like wrestling fans you've always wanted to see, right? And you know, in that have been like dream matches that you know, oh man, if I could ever see uh, you know, a more complete version of Bill Dundee, Buddy Landell versus Dutch Mantel, Jerry Lawler, Texas Death, that would be a dream, right? Or you know, when we finally got a couple years ago, when we finally got last battle of Atlanta. So like, right. as a match you've heard about, always wanted to see, and then you got to see it was girl. But then, like, sometimes that Houston footage was like, I didn't ever know about this Jose Lothario, um, you know, Gino Hernandez cage match. That wasn't something that was on my radar. I've always wanted to see, but then it showed up. You're like, oh man, you know, it was incredible. This Jose Lothario, Gino Hernandez cage match, or this, or there was like a Terry Funk, Harley, you know, a Terry Funk, uh, you know, a, a Harley Race World Title match. Which is like, oh, this is the quality, the and the quality and it, of the Houston footage is is beautiful yeah. too. I mean, like, well, that's like the way of my. I don't do the way of the blade. I haven't done the way of blade podcast in a while, so I haven't had a chance to come to bitch at Billy Corgan for sitting on that stuff uh, in a public forum. So I'm coming on your podcast to do it, Billy Corgan. You know, I'm curious. The- I was curious about that because I remember they the NWA got the Houston footage before Billy Corgan came into the picture. So I wasn't even 100% sure if he still owns it or if it wound up somewhere else. I know, I think they do. I know that the WWE tried to get it, and they actually got outbid. Uh, they wanted to include the Houston stuff. And, you know, when when like I say on here a lot, when WWE gets outbid on something, 
it's not because it was too expensive. It's because they didn't feel like shelling out whatever it was going to cost. They didn't think it was worthwhile, which is a shame, but it's, it's out there. I mean, there's a, you talk about the things you find going through it. There's a Harley race title defense against Wahoo McDaniel, which is like one of these things you never hear, you know, they've probably wrestled a million times, but this specific match that's on in the Houston archive. And it's just two men trying to kill each other for about 45 minutes in a in the Sam Houston Coliseum. It, it's a thing of beauty to watch. It, it's beautiful and brutal. <laughs> No, I mean, you know, obviously the, and then obviously the WWE, you know, the, those are the, those are the two like, uh, you know, holy grail, you know, footage things, right? Is that rest that NWA huge? Because I think there's still a ton of it that they didn't get released. I don't think they didn't finish releasing right. all they had and then it got bought. It got bought and then right in the middle of it and then it ended. And then obviously, you know, I don't know how much, I mean, maybe you know, right? More than me, how much like, like Omni stuff they've got in the in that's a that's a mystery that's a big mystery as far as which would you know i was there when they purchased up a lot of the different libraries because in the 2000s was when they got like the lion's share the tricky thing is this the georgia stuff omni cards georgia championship wrestling my understanding is that jim crockett promotions when they took over the TBS time slot. They wound up somehow inheriting a lot of Georgia because Georgia, you know, Georgia Championship Wrestling was out of business, the original promotion. They wound up inheriting a lot of that footage, whatever there was of it. And they, and then, of course, then it became WCW's property. And then when WWE bought all the WCW library, they wound up with it. Now, the question has always been what actually exists? We don't know. Not only that, but the quality of what exists. It, it's a huge mystery, and there have been little tiny bits and pieces that have come out, but I have not seen any definitive answer of like how much Georgia footage there is in, in WWE's library. I'm as curious about it as, as anybody else. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, they had they released obviously. I mean, they would put out Omni cards like when they were doing the hidden gem stuff. You'd see all right. of a sudden they'd show, put up a you know Thanksgiving tag tournament or something like that, or they put up one match from it. I was like, okay, well, they've got to have the rest of this. I mean, right, it's like they right. Just this one match, and the quality on the stuff they put out was like really, really good. It wasn't. You know, I'm an old school tape trader. I'm used to just like I'll watch some shit quality as long as I can kind of see what's going on. I don't really care what the quality is. I mean, the stuff there was really good, and I just I don't know. That was obvious. And then obviously, whether the stuff after became WCW, it's like, do you as would you assume that they have, you know, thanks, you know, would they have Ric Flair, Terry Funk, I Quit from the Omni? Because that happened at the Omni, right? It happened yeah. like in around the same period as they, you know, a couple months before they ran it at Clash of the Champions. I would say um, yes, honestly, because we know that Georgia Championship Wrestling was recording all those big Omni, Omni cards at the time. And they would put like bits and pieces of it on their show with commentary laid over it and that kind of thing. So there's got to be a significant amount the other the question i have about it is i'm wondering if it's a quality issue because wwe like you said i mean people like us will watch anything we don't care if it's like eighth generation vhs whatever 
But WWE, they have these standards of quality and they put a lot of manpower into restoring footage. And and sometimes, in some cases, if there's stuff that doesn't live up to their like standard, they will sit on it. And because they don't want to put stuff that looks like shit on Peacock or the WWE Network. Now, I we can disagree with that stance, but I think that is their stance. So that also may be what keeps some stuff out. Like they put up a bunch of 1980 WWF Championship Wrestling episodes recently from January, February, March, April of 1980, the whole Bruno San Martino, Larry Zabisco saga. There are some key episodes in there that are just missing where you miss parts of the storyline, you know, a, a, a famous promo. And and I really do think in some cases, some of the footage has deteriorated to the point that they don't want to air it. And I think that's a shame, but I think that is part of what goes into the decision-making. Yeah, I think, you know, part of it is just the stuff that interests maybe us isn't necessarily the stuff that right. interests us. It's a bad. tiny audience when, you know, we can't, yeah. we can't have illusions about that. It is a tiny audience and there's a lot of money and time that goes into getting that stuff ready. I know people that have worked on it. And I think at the end of the day, there comes a time where they just go, oh, I don't know if it's worth it to focus on this right now. And that's too bad, but it's reality, you know? I mean, hopefully at some point it becomes cheaper to be able to do like I that kind so. of stuff. And you can get get somebody there. I, I I've been I, you know the ringers got a relationship with the WWE, so I'm trying to figure out projects. Like that's my goal. 2023, as I gotta get, I want to get into the archives. Maybe we can figure out something with PWI and the ringers yes. could do a cross promotion that allows me and you to just dig into the the Stanford archives for a week and find out where all the stuff is. I, I've been in there. I've been in the room. Like as this was yeah. even before they really digitized digitized most of it, just the giant shelves of tapes. I've seen it with my eyes. And when I worked there, you know, I I did what any of us would have done if we found ourselves working there is I totally took advantage of the connections that I had. Like every now and then I would, I would literally email or send a call over to the department that handled it and just be like, you know, I'm working on a story. Can I have a copy of the episode of championship wrestling where George, the animal steel dislocates Rick Bolton's shoulder. And I'd give them the date and like the next day, because again, this is like 20 years ago, the next day there'd be a VHS tape on my desk. It had been dubbed specifically for me. And it said WWF Championship Wrestling, whatever, September 1981, blah, blah, blah. And I could do that whenever I wanted. That, that was one of the major perks of working there. Oh, All I had to do was come up with an excuse of why I needed it. And it would be there. I mean, really. Yeah, that's the only maybe the only reason I would take a job. <laughs> it's got my hands on the footage. I don't know if I want to actually do anything else there, but I would. But I would want to be able to make those emails and phone calls for sure. Guys, I'm you know this. Can you look at this Rick Steiner, the Steiner Brothers versus Miracle Death Violence Convention from the Omni? Guys, got that on tape. You get that to me. My boss would uh, be like, you know, like. Leave those guys alone. What are you doing this to them for? You don't really need that. You don't really need that tape. You're just making work for them. And I'd be like, shh, shh don't tell them. Don't tell them. That's right. Yeah, it was it, it was it was a lot of fun. And that was one of the perks of working there, I have to say. Um, but um, 
God, you know, it's funny. I feel like we've been talking for an hour and I didn't even get into a lot of the blood stuff that I wanted to talk about. I actually have one. Before we wrap up, there's one thing that was on my mind that I was curious about because it's a subject of mine that I'm fascinated by. And I don't know if you, in the research you've done and things, if you've ever come across this, but the whole idea of where blading in wrestling really started and why, because I feel like, it's it's maybe the 40s but i'm not really sure like where does where does that practice begin you know uh, um, i know people talk about i wouldn't be shocked if it was even earlier than that maybe I the 30s I mean, like people talk about i i always hear um what's the guy um uh well bull curry and oh, man Danny McShane, the guy I'm thinking of is Irish Danny McShane. They they credit him with like in you know popularizing chair shots in wrestling. And and this is stuff that kind of goes back to the 40s. I'm wondering if it's if it was because of television. Like what were you ever able to uncover uncover anything about where blading and wrestling started? I, I didn't, you know, obviously I think you don't you know the the, the history of that stuff's very it, you know, cloudy, right? Yeah. Whereas you know, like I was working with stuff I had footage of, right? So I don't have a lot of footage of the stuff that before that. But I don't know. I mean, if you just think about it rationally, right? Blood was obviously a huge draw in boxing, going back to the start of boxing, right? Yes. So it doesn't feel like if you're doing pro wrestling, worked pro wrestling, it would just make sense that you would find a way to incorporate blood in it, going back as far as it was worked. Right. Just it just would it seems like if you're gonna have, you know, Jack Johnson is gonna have a, or you know, or or these you know boxers from the turn of the century are gonna have these bloody wars that wouldn't you if you were doing pro wrestling find a way to do that anyway? I just feel like it, it feels like it might be something that is at the very beginning of it, right? As soon as somebody decided that they were gonna put on an exhibition that's gonna look like a fight, but isn't it feels like they would have found a way to make themselves bleed. Right. As part of it. it just, it just, and that's, and that's purely just, and that's, it's supposition, but it just seems like it makes sense, right? Like if what you're doing is you're creating a situation where you're going to have a simulated combat, right? It's not going to be boxing. It's going to be performance. You're going to want to wait to have it look like unperformative combat that's going on at the same time, right? So if you're, if your earliest boxing matches in the 1870s or your battle royals uh you know your real battle royals right and the undercards of boxing matches and stuff goes back as far as it goes back if you're doing something that's supposed to look like that it feels like you'd find a way to bleed and whether that's a razor blade or whether that's popping an eyebrow or whatever it is it just doesn't seem to be like they would have had wrestling for very long and not had blood in it Right. I also just, wonder if maybe in the beginning of that practice, if they were doing it hard way a lot and somebody decided, you know what, instead of just bashing my head open against the ring post, maybe it would be smarter if we just did it this way and it was a lot who, safer. Who's who's that genius who decided <laughs> to wrap up? Uh, right? I mean, you know, it's cut ourselves right. shaving. Like we don't know what blood is, right? Like how to get it relatively easily. So it feels like that. Who's the, that? Uh, that miraculous person, like the person who first said, "I'm going to put this ground beef in between two pieces of bread," right? Like the guy who invented the hamburger versus the guy who decided, you know what? I'm tired every time I'm wrestling for this guy to punch me in my eyebrow really hard until it opens right. up. I'm going to take the 
safety razor. I'm just going to do that. And it's going to be a lot easier on my, I'm not going to have so many bruises and swelling on my face from getting it. I mean, that was almost funny. It's like the, the WWF, they had to go back to the, uh, the old ways, right? Where it's like they wanted to get blood, then they got to punch each other right in the forehead. It's like they they skipped the shortcut. No, you're right. There have what? been times in recent years where they have gotten around the ban because then you could have plausible deniability and say, oh, it was an accident. But like, like there was a situation with Brock Lesnar and Randy Orton where that happened. And I don't even know. Or I don't even know if Orton knew it was coming. Where they didn't he didn't give Orton a concussion. He did. I mean, it's like- and the Undertaker and Brock Lesnar did it in a match once where Lesnar, to his credit, did it to himself. He smacked his head into the into the post, apparently on purpose, so that they could go, oh, well, I, I didn't mean to do it. And then the question became, did Vince know? Did he not know? Did he tell them to do it that way? Like, it's really bizarre well, when you Vince, think about it. Vince did that thing with Kevin Owens a couple years ago, right? Wasn't Vince like the last guy to do a blade job? Like it was like three years, four years. Yeah, ago he, or he did it to himself, right? Where he, he, I think Kevin Owens headbutted him or something, and he yeah, bladed. He, yeah. Well, you know, I guess those are the rules, right? You know, like nobody's. Well, nobody's, I'm the boss. I can no, do it. Nobody's drug testing. I mean, that's obviously gotten into a lot of trouble. That attitude, but uh, nobody's drug testing Vince. Nobody's. Uh, you know, uh, telling him he can't play. Nobody's telling him, I guess, to leave the secretaries alone. Nobody could tell oh, him anything. Well, on that on that note, <laughs> feel free to cut that. Bro. I don't want to know. Listen, I'm the guy who ran Vince down for an hour and a half on a documentary on Vice TV. So I'm the last one that's going to tell people not to talk trash. No, but um, but this has been. A lot of fun, actually, and and I'm glad that we got to talk about so many different topics, which is what I was hoping was going to happen. And when when I have somebody like you on here, so it it this is just this was this was great, and I can't thank you enough. Yeah, and uh, so I, I, my book available, Wave of the Blade, available on Amazon. Uh, pick it up if if that sounds. I was based. If it sounds like something you might be interested in, I think you will be happy with it, right? I mean, obviously, this is not a a, a stocking stuff or Christmas gift for your aunt who doesn't like right. Like it is for me. For me, it would be for an it has an audience, right? Like it has a specific audience. But if it feels like you're listening to this pod, you're probably somebody who would like the book. Is my guess is it is is how I would put it, right? Like if you're in the demographic, I think you would dig it, and I think you know. Like I said, the art is really incredible, and, and you get a chance, I think, to you know read some stuff about some matches you've heard of, and also probably almost assuredly discover some cool matches that you have not heard of. I can't imagine there's very many people on Earth who have seen all hundred of those matches uh, outside of using the book as a as a. I think I know there are definitely some people who've used the book as a as a viewing guide to watch them all, but. I, I can't imagine anybody who hadn't heard of my book gets my book and go, oh, yeah, these hundred. I've watched all of these hundred. No chance. Zero chance. You're well, definitely going to discover something cool you've never seen before. And that's um, something that's cool about the book, too, that, you know, people can find and watch all the matches that are in it. So you can, like, pick up the book and actually see them. You know, it doesn't always happen. In some cases, you you know, there's no way to watch certain matches. We don't, you know, we can only go by anecdotal evidence. And you've got a book where... No, you can actually track these matches down. So, I mean, that's another yeah. reason. There's a, there's a viewing guide on uh, on uh, the Hybrid Shoot website yep. that's got links to everything that's linked. 
And I'm, my DMs are open on Twitter. If there's a thing that somebody gets the book and there's a match they can't find, hit your boy up. I'll get you a copy Perfect. of the match. And I want to um, mention the ringer too, because people can read your stuff there. And it's it, it's so eclectic. I know like you've done stuff recently on on KG Muto's career. And of course, we mentioned Jay Briscoe. And I think you did a, a, a little bit on the whole kind of Sami Zayn bloodline saga. So, I mean, like there's literally, you know, it, it's a, a very wide and eclectic range of topics that they let you write about on there. So that's cool too. Yeah. And, and it, it, I have, uh, it's a combo of things. So every Monday um, I write um, a column. That's the three best matches of the previous week. So I'm on there regularly every Monday. So it's a great idea. Come Monday, you've got something to read about. And, uh, and then I, I get to do a lot of these sort of weird side projects and that's, you know, you know, I, I try to do those once every couple, once every month or once every six weeks or something like that, where I get to really get in my bag and talk about something, you know, a little more historical, a little more, you know, off the beaten path, a little more digging in the crates kind of things. But the the weekly column, it's cool. So I, you know, I write about the way it works is I write about the best match from AEW in the previous week, the best match from the WWE in the previous week. And then the third one is just, you know, the for me one. Where it's like I go in there and I'm gonna I'm gonna find you know the cool a cool thing that happened in Mexico or a cool thing that happened in Japan or a cool thing that happened on you know an indie show somewhere and so I really get to write about a lot of different you know all the little different flavors of pro wrestling outside of the stuff that you're gonna necessarily see on national television so it's sort of some of the column sort of somewhat serves in the same way that the book does where you'll get to I'll, I'll write them I'm writing about. Darby Allen Smojo right now, right? So I'm going to write about that. I'm probably going to write about something that happens on SmackDown or NXT Judgment Day uh, this weekend. But I'm also going to, the third match will be something that is a little more uh, obscure, a little more unusual. And it gives people a chance to like, again, find wrestlers that they may not have heard of, matches that they not may not have heard of and and say, oh man, this, this thing is really cool. So it, I think the column allows me to do a little of that too, a little bit of excavation, which is always my favorite thing to write about. That's great. And, and that's an idea that's so good that I, I wish I had thought of it or I wish I was shameless enough to steal it. It's just such a great concept to be able to write, to, you know, to kind of like do this weekly thing where you're you're writing about current wrestling, but it's also geared to your interests, the kind of matches that you want to see and what you consider to be the best. And, you know, it, it it's, it's just a great idea. And no, another reason why people should check out your stuff. So I highly recommend it. Well, I, and I appreciate you having me on. This is a lot of fun. I'm, you know, I'm easy to get in touch with. So if you ever get need a, if you ever need a, a fill in guest or something like that, you know, I, I, you got my number. And now we're even. I did your show. You did my show. You know, I gotta, I gotta bring back way of the blade so I can, you know, I can have you back on and talk about some more stuff too. That's that's a like I said. I got some 2023 goals. I got to get at the archives and I got to get way of the blade up and running again too. There you have it, folks, my conversation with Phil Schneider of The Way of the Blade and TheRinger.com. As I'm sure you can tell after the conclusion of that interview, Phil is a real student of pro wrestling history, and those really are my favorite kinds of people to have on the show as guests. Those conversations are always great, always informative. Hope you enjoyed it. Moving right along. Next week on Shut Up and Wrestle is going to be an interesting one because I have somebody who worked very closely 
in Jack Tunney's Toronto wrestling office in the 1980s, right around the time of the WWF expansion and their partnership with that office. I'm talking about Mike Clark. Mike Clark, an interesting guy, and he's going to be my guest next week on Shut Up and Wrestle. And I've got a lot of other guests lined up. If you just keep on listening to this show, I'm talking about Mary Freeze, the daughter of Pampero Furpo, on the way. Bob Smith, formerly of Pro Wrestling Illustrated and London Publishing, on the way, as well as Gennard Soli, the son of the Dean of Wrestling Announcers, Gordon Soli. That's going to be a great one. Believe me, he is all man and a yard wide, just like his dad. So keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle. You can find us in so many places. We have our website, suawpod.com. We also can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Podbean, wherever you find your podcasts, you'll find Shut Up and Wrestle. So please go ahead and subscribe. And while you're at it, join the Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. Lots of interesting Wonderful, hilarious, fascinating updates all the time. We just had Ken Patera on the show last week, and there have been lots of great Ken Patera updates in the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group. That's the kind of stuff that you'll find if you join us, so please do. You can also listen to me on the PWI podcast, which I co-host with Al Castle. You'll find that also wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Wrestling News, your daily morning update on the world of professional wrestling and everything you need to know, told to you by Mike Sempervivi. If you are not listening, please do check it out. Subscribe. We're at TheWrestlingNews.com. You will not regret it. Five to ten minutes every morning, sometimes even 15, filling your brain with the most important wrestling news tidbits to take you through your day so you can act like you know what the hell is going on in this crazy industry, so please do listen. If you want to pick up my book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, you can find it in digital, print, and audio form on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Barnes & Noble stores. Wherever you get books, if they're not carrying it, tell them to order it. And I also want to mention some of the appearances I'm going to be doing for Blood and Fire, as I've been mentioning, the book has won an award. It is a Michigan notable book of 2022, according to the Library of Michigan. On April 22nd, coming up around the corner, I will be at the Michigan Notable Books Dinner at the Library of Michigan in Lansing. And if you go to their website, you can find out how you can get a ticket to attend if you're so inclined. I will also be returning to the Lansing, Detroit, Michigan area in May for some library book talks on Monday, May 22nd, I will be at the Charlotte, Michigan Community Library. On Tuesday, May 23rd, I will be at the Community District Library in Corona, Michigan. I hope I pronounced that properly. And on Wednesday, May 24th, I will be at the St. Clair Community Library in Port Huron, Michigan. So please do come down if you're so inclined, and I would love to meet you and talk to you. If you want to read the articles that I write, you can find them in two very prestigious professional wrestling magazines, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, which you can get at pwi-online.com, as well as Inside the Ropes magazine, which you can get in print and digital form at insidetheropesmagazine.com. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. 
And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that when your bank says no, champion says yes. So long, wrestling fans. <laughs>